Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 2.4, an ongoing struggle. Well, good to see you back again. Uh, With this podcast, we're at the end of part two on creation. So far, we've looked at some stuff on how to interpret, and we've seen a real tension in Genesis 1 and 2 between these themes of chaos and creation. I've labelled those as life-diminishing and life-giving forces, and we've seen that both of them are present at the start of the biblical story, and that both of those forces are at work in your life, life-giving and life-diminishing forces. So in this podcast, what I want to do is shift from questions about how to read the Bible to this very real theological tension or existential tension in our lives between the forces of chaos and creation. We've already explored the ideas, so let's consider our own experiences a bit. On one hand, you are an absolute wonder. You really are. A beautiful person with desires, abilities, a unique personality, sense of humour, a body, a laugh, unique facial expressions, an ability to relate to others that is also very you. And you probably know that one of life's greatest wonders is relating to other people who also have all those characteristics and getting to know, sometimes even getting to love, who they are as distinct people who are different from you. And we know from Genesis 1.27 that we've been created in the image of God. And in the ancient world, kings would put images of themselves around to ensure that everyone knew who was boss. You can see that if you look at Daniel 3, this big statue that tells everyone in Babylon who's the king. What's surprising about Israel's creation account is that God creates us as his image bearers and he entrusts us to rule over his creation right? Not just the kings. He's not a tyrant king himself who lords it over us, but one who blesses his image bearers and says this to us, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over, over, uh, and over sorry, excuse me, every living thing that moves upon the earth. In other words, God has filled the earth with images of himself, human beings, God makes his character known, not through impressive golden statues that tower over us, but through us, through people of all shapes and sizes who bear his image. It's awesome, isn't it? Psalm 139 reflects on this, on the beauty of our creation. Listen to these verses uh, read from the message. Oh yes, you shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, you're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvellously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd even lived one day. In other words, you and I were created with reverence and honour and wonder. God has ordered you and your life in incredible detail. Now, this this is all good stuff, right? This is the positive, life-giving message of creation. And there are a lot of other creation texts 
in the Old Testament, a lot. It's not just a Genesis 1 thing. Of course, there are a lot of verses using creation language in the New Testament as well. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, So if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Sounds awesome. (laughs) It sounds fantastic. In Christ, I'm a new creation. However, while the Bible does affirm the goodness of creation, there's also uh, quite a lot that the Bible has to say about the other side of being human, the dark side. We might call it our shadow side. Chaos lurks there. And as early as Genesis 3, we, we see Adam and Eve, their names mean earth and life, we see them being entrusted with one commandment, just one, which, were, which they break. They're given the freedom to obey or to disobey. They're asked not to push the red button. And so when they think no one's watching, they push it. The very next chapter in Genesis 4 uh, tells of this same resistance to God in their son, Cain. Cain gets jealous of his brother, it happens, and when he gets angry, God sits him down for a little one-on-one. This is what God says to him, verses 6 and 7. God says to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? If you do the right thing, you'll be fine. But if you don't, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Unlike his parents, uh, Cain is warned in that moment of temptation. Did you notice that? But he chooses to express his anger or his rage in hateful violence towards his brother. So we see the spreading of this disease that the Bible calls sin from Adam and Eve through their kids and beyond. And within just a few chapters, we already come to this. In Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humanity was great in the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Wow. Things have certainly gone downhill fast. The life-diminishing forces of chaos appear to be winning. Every inclination of humanity is continually towards evil. And in spite of yet another creation story with the flood, we end up seeing this disease of sin spreading further still as the nations are scattered in Genesis 11 to the ends of the earth. So in these first 11 chapters of the Bible, we see sort of in a microcosm what sin will do to the world. So yes, people have been created in God's image, wonderfully made to bear God's character in the world. But... Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Each of us struggles to do the things we know God wants for us, just like those stories at the beginning of Genesis. Now, I wonder how you understand this to be true in your life. Make it personal. If you're anything like me, you you find it hard to hold these things in tension. Because on one hand, I'm an amazing new creation. And on the other, I struggle as much as the next person to be patient, to be pure, to be gentle, to be selfless, to be generous and kind, and and so on. I struggle with sin. So let's start with this cliche word, sin, this Christian jargon. It's an awkward word because Christians assume that everyone knows what it is, but they usually just mean being bad in some way or other. So let's be more specific 
about what this life-diminishing force actually is. Uh, I really like the way Francis Spufford describes this in his awesome book called Unapologetic. That's the title. The subtitle is Why Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. So he makes up for his short title with a very long title. But I like the way he describes sin. Throughout his book, he avoids jargon and he presents the Christian faith in a way that's really fresh as a result. And in the second chapter, entitled The Crack in Everything, Spufford writes that the word sin refers to something much more like the human tendency, the human propensity to, I'm going to say muck things up. I'm going to change one letter there. Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to muck things up Because what we're really talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. He says it's our active inclination to break stuff, stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. That's from page 27 of his book. And I think Spufford is spot on. He says it it takes some people longer than others, but in the end, all of us human beings recognize this in ourselves. We screw things up. We wreck relationships because we stop trusting. We wreck our finances because we're greedy. We wreck our careers our bodies, our very lives. And Spufford isn't saying this because he's in some depressive state of mind and he wants the world to burn. No, he he says, you have indeed, this is a quote, you have indeed, again, I'll change one letter, mucked things up. Of course you have. You're human. And that's where we live. That's our normal experience. So Spufford begins with the bad news because, well, as another author, Frederick Beekner has said, You can't really grasp the good news until you've understood the bad. And I want to stay with him a minute longer because Francis Spufford stays with sin, the human propensity to muck things up, and he develops that idea long enough to point out that the ongoing presence of this chaos in our lives actually has the potential to lead us somewhere life-giving. Now, you might be thinking, come on. How can the worst things in our lives lead us to something good? How is that possible? You don't understand. I have a huge problem with anger or with jealousy or with lust, with insecurity. I struggle with this chaos monster on a daily basis and you're telling me that it can lead me somewhere good? Yes, I am. Spufford closes his chapter by asking, what do we do with the knowledge that we've mucked up? He says the crack in everything is here to stay. But it's precisely the guilty chaos of the human propensity to muck things up that leads us to God. That chaotic force in our lives, when we finally bring ourselves to see it, can actually bring us to our knees to say the word, help. Help. See, the the promise of new creation always begins with that little word, help. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm not in control. I don't know how to get everything right. I just can't. I need help. See, God is in that struggle between chaos and creation. 
As we saw in Genesis 1 verse 2, his spirit hovers over the waters of chaos, causing ripples, bringing light, bringing life, bringing order. How then, I hear you're asking, how does God bring light, life and order to my chaotic existence? Well, let's take a quick look at the central event in the Old Testament for an answer. By the end of Genesis, one of God's promises to Abraham has been kept. That is, Abraham has numerous descendants, right? That's one of the things that God promises him. The problem, though, is that all these Hebrews are building a kingdom for another king. They're slaves in Egypt. So through Moses, God delivers them, and then we see a lot of the creation motives uh, revisited in the first dozen chapters of Exodus. Because what God's doing there is he's creating a people for himself. So God divides the waters so that the dry land appears, and he leads this people through the waters to begin their new life. But like us, Israel is tainted with the human propensity to muck things up. We see it almost immediately when they get to the other side of the Red Sea and they make a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. And yet, see, they do something like that. And yet at the same time, we know that they are a new creation. So how does God bring light and life and order to their chaos? Well, as you may know, God establishes a covenant with them. And through that covenant relationship, that marriage contract, as the prophets call it, God continues to make himself known to Israel. And through the law, he continues to guide them in how they can reflect his image in the world. And as it happens, covenant is our next topic. So as we round things up for for now, and on this topic, have a think on this question. It's a bit of a personal one. Have a think about your own propensity to muck things up, to behave in ways that you don't particularly like or even choose, and ask how might those experiences be used to lead you towards God. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.